Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome to a Premier League season wrap-up edition of the Corner Kick podcast. With me, I have Caleb Rhodes. Hello. Nathan Strauss. Hello. And we have all just concluded watching the Championship Sunday edition of this Premier League game week, the final game day of the Premier League season in which there was a lot of different variables and flip-floppy scenarios that could have gone down today. But I think it, it, it all sort of went as predicted, Caleb Rhodes. Do you want to get us into the way the final table is shaken out? Yes. So I'll just do a quick rundown of the table for our listeners. So obviously, Liverpool in first place. We, we've known that for over a month now. City comfortably in second. And then third and fourth was obviously the big questions today. Man U ended up finishing third, which I don't think many of us would have predicted at the beginning of the season. Uh, Chelsea grabbing fourth after keeping a clean sheet, which is, you know, definitely not what they're used to recently. Leicester slumping to fifth. Tottenham sneaking into sixth. And Wolves probably a little disappointed to have only finished seventh. Arsenal eighth. I'll skip the mid-table. I mean, I'll note that Sheffield finished ninth. um, And certainly we were hoping that they might get Europa League. And then at the bottom of the table, the big news being that Aston Villa escaped the drop, finishing in 17th. Bournemouth somehow finished 18th, still relegated, but did what they had to do today with a win over Everton. And then Watford, who have really shat the bed um, (laughs) (laughs) in the last eight weeks or so, finishing in 19th their fourth manager appointment of the year, not able to get it done in their probably singular game in charge. And then Norwich, who have been dire, um, finishing well, well, well off the pace in 20th. So that's kind of of how the season has ended up. But maybe we should start with some of the big games today, particularly the biggest one, Manchester United versus Leicester. Boys, what did you think about this game? I mean... I was underwhelmed by the first half of this game, I think. Uh, I think both sides were a little tense and a little nervous. Uh, But then the second half, you could really feel the intensity start to push up. I do think that Leicester, since the restart, have suffered a lot from the absence of Ricardo Pereira in particular, uh, who obviously was out uh, until the start of next season. And I think that since they've switched to that sort of hybrid three-at-the-back system, they haven't really looked as menacing on the attack, but still, they when they did attack, it just didn't seem like they were ever going to be able to put the finishing touches on it. I think back to that that great Iannaccio chance in the first half where he was through on goal, and then it looks like he hit the ball like down into the turf, and uh, even David De Gea wouldn't mess up that shot. So all in all, I think it was a fair result. United did get the benefit of another penalty today which is, as, as Nick said off the podcast, I believe it's their 14th of the year. It was a Premier League record 14th penalty awarded this year for Manchester United. Yeah, so, I mean, we've seen them get on the receiving end of a couple favorable decisions. Uh, but then again, when you have Jesse Lingard coming off the bench to seal things, you know that it just really well and truly was your day. 
And by the way, Jesse Lingard, in almost a thousand Premier League minutes this year, was able to register his first goal or assist on ostensibly the last kick of the season. Yeah, I think uh, as Nathan was saying, Leicester have really suffered since the restart in the absence of James Madison, who was their main creator in behind Jamie Vardy, and also perhaps the second best fullback duo in the Prem, Ben Chilwell and Ricardo Pereira. Of their last four games, they've lost three of them, including today at United. But I think Leicester, we didn't really expect them to be competing in, in, in and around the top four places. But this was also a team that was 14 points ahead of Manchester United in January and, and who had been in the top four for 30 straight game weeks. So for them to not be able to hold on to a Champions League place must be absolutely devastating for the Foxes. And I think they, on the balance of play throughout the entirety of the season, I think you could say that maybe they deserved a chance in the Champions League next season, but injuries didn't shake out for them. And also the form of Manchester United was just a little bit too much for them coming into today. Yeah, I mean, we talked about how this Leicester team has been missing a lot of players. And I think another player who they're missing today, Soyuncu, has just been huge for them at center back. And so not having him around and having to draft in Wes Morgan, who's just a little past it. Um, and I, I can't help but think that there was that sad moment where like probably one of the best opportunities of the game fell to a volley that Wes Morgan just completely whiffed in the box. And I can't really blame him because he's well into his 30s and he's a center back. But you can't help but think that way back in the 2015-16 season, that's the type of goal that they would have got. And I think they were just a little bit unlucky on the day. Certainly, Johnny Evans was a double agent in disguise, you know, giving up the penalty for Bruno Fernandez, getting a red card. I mean, pretty much everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, and certainly... This felt like a very broad thing. And I, I hate to like, you know, harp on him too much, but it just seems like a lot of his career is getting so close and, you know, going 98% of the way there and then just deciding not to push yourself in the last second. Yeah. I do think that in a weird way, playing in the Europa League next season is probably better for this Leicester squad than sneaking into that fourth, that, that, uh, that pot four, uh, Champions League spot and I think it's probably good for the English coefficient as a whole that Leicester finished where they do looking at how Leicester finished up the season three wins from their last 14 I think that's pretty indicative of how poor their depth is and of course injuries are unfortunate but injuries happen to every single team when you look at the teams that are going to be competing from the Premier League in the Champions League next year in Liverpool, Man City, United and Chelsea especially with the incoming uh, signings of of Chelsea, you have to think that those are probably the four strongest sides in the entire Premier League. Uh, so while Leicester definitely should have held on to a Champions League spot, I think the teams that wound up there are the teams that deserve to be there to compete. But at the end of the day, I do think that Chelsea and United in particular have the squad depth to make a serious Champions League run. But if Leicester were faced with a European campaign, uh, with the current squad that they have, I have to feel like it would be a death knell for their eventual Premier League finishing place. I think the question is, was this the best opportunity for Leicester and Brendan to make the Champions League because of the regression of teams like Chelsea, because of the regression of teams like Spurs and Arsenal? Will they be able to re-motivate themselves to have another campaign like this? Or is the gap next season, because of the aforementioned signings like Timo Werner, Ziyech, 
potentially Kai Havertz, which looks like it's edging closer and closer to being done. Was this the best opportunity for the Foxes to elevate themselves to that next level? And are they going to find that find the gap a little bit too wide for them to close next season? I th- I think they are, and I think I just don't think this team is going to get much better unless they find goals beyond Jamie Vardy, right? I mean, he's 33 this year. He was the Premier League top scorer, but can you really expect him at age 34 next year to score as many goals when he also has to contend in Europe? Like, do you trust Iosi Perez to take up the goal-scoring burden? Is Nacho a good enough player to lead a Europa League-quality team? I'm not sure. Also, I think, is Ben Chilwell going to stick around? I mean, we talked about how important these wide backs were for the team and how their absence has been devastating for their form. But Chilwell sounds like he might be going to Chelsea. So I, I just worry that both offensively and defensively, they're going to be a little stretched. Yeah, and on that note, let's talk about the team that they played and the team that just pipped them to Champions League football next season in the form of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United. And I think the resurgence of United can all be attributed to one man, and that is the stutter step king himself, the Portuguese Bruno Fernandes. Caleb, I know you're a big fan of Bruno. What have you made of his coming into the Premier League in January and taking it by storm and elevating the level of United up to Champions League play? I mean, he's just the piece that was missing from this team. And I know a lot of his goals have been penalties, but hey, you got to score them. And I, I think that he's just been so amazing. And it just seems like such, given what well, he was signed for like 60 million, that's not that much, honestly, for a player that's just been dominating the Liga Nos for several years now. Such a good signing. So excited to see like Manchester Derby's next year and see Kevin De Bruyne come up, come up against Bruno Fernandes. I'm I'm so impressed with this player and sort of the balance that he has brought to this Manchester United team. But we can't forget the real hero of today. I, I mean, like it had to be Jesse Lingard, didn't it? <laughs> right? Like leave leave a man to just be so awful the entire year to be you know completely surpassed by Daniel James and then more pertinently Mason Greenwood. But of course he had to like steal the headlines by securing third place. I don't know. This man, I kind of want him to stay at Manchester United just because I feel like he's a meme. But I I think he has to go. Like he he gives me big like Roberto Pereira vibes. Just like totally way out of his depth and should really be um joining you know, Pereira and Danny Welbeck in the championship at Watford. (laughs) I think he definitely screams a uh, mediocre London club. But Nathan, what is your take on United squeezing their way into the Champions League and the form of United since product restart and the fact that they've been offensively perhaps the most potent team in the division? I mean, I think you really can attribute it all to Bruno Fernandes. I mean, this man has an average rating in his 14 Premier League matches of 8.0 which is the highest of any player in the Premier League, 0.03 higher than Kevin De Bruyne. So you really can't overstate how impressive he's been. Eight goals and seven assists. And the fact of the matter is he's only 25 years old. So you're looking at a United team who are poised really with one or two more signings to compete in the next three or four years. Like we're about to see their window of competitiveness, I think. And when you look at their forwards as well, we know they don't have, you know, a super established world-class striker, but the trio of Martial, Rashford, and Mason Greenwood 
combined for 35 goals this year uh, in all competitions, which is pretty decent. So you have to think that a, a world-class center back signing and maybe a another attacking signing, this United team could really challenge. And the nice thing about United too is they have, you know, they seem to be consistently producing these talented young players. And I think their their squad depth is such that they're they'll be able to rotate uh, a little bit here and there in the Champions League next year. They've got players like Brandon Williams who are young but still capable of doing the job in those outside back positions. They also have players who could very easily be sold on to make a bit of a profit this upcoming uh, transfer window. So while I don't necessarily see a place for a player like Tahith Chong or Andreas Pereira in the squad long term, that being said, I'm not entirely sold on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer being... I was about to bring up this point. I don't think... I think Ole can only take them so far. I think he's shown in moments that are that require him to be a little bit more tactically adept to get a result. He's not able to make those tactical shifts that perhaps a more elite manager would be able to make. I'm not saying that he needs to be a Pep Guardiola or that he needs to be a Maurizio Pochettino, but I certainly think that if Man United start to stutter next season, there are far more capable managers out there to get the best out of this young squad. Yeah, and I'll just note that once I think Greenwood, Martial, and Rashford have combined for more like 50 goals this year, not 35. You are fake news. Which is even more impressive. But I agree that Solskjaer, definitely, he is the first... Man U manager in a long time to get results out of the players he's had. He's the first Man U manager to bring in a player that actually makes a difference. Um, so I have to give him credit for that. But I think next year, now he has the squad, and that will be the time where we get to see, like, okay, what can he do with this team in Europe? And I think seeing him on the Champions League stage will be a huge test of you know, how good this Man U team can become in the next three to five years, um, and also a test of sort of his own managerial prowess. Let's move down the table, but not too far down the table, as it was a clash at Stamford Bridge between Chelsea and Wolves. Uh, lads, I think this one was a bit more one-sided than we anticipated. Chelsea sort of ran away with it towards the end of the first half, scoring two goals in quick succession. Olivier Giroud just absolutely manhandling the Wolves' defense for that second goal, a beautiful counterattack set up by Pulisic and Mason Mount. Mason Mount free kick, getting the scoring started for Chelsea. Uh, before the beginning of the season, maybe we would have said that Champions League was just a bit beyond Frank Lampard and this Chelsea squad. They have been a bit inconsistent in defense, but Lampard, at the end of the day, he's gotten them across the line. First off, credit to him for benching Kepa. Um, we know Kepa's not a player who likes to be benched. Um, but at least he didn't try taking him off like mid-game, so that's <laughs> that's progress. But I think I think that's a big call, though. No, I think that's a huge call. But I mean, Capo didn't make a single save against Liverpool, right? Um, and he has one of the lowest save percentages. It's like hovering just above fifty percent of any goalkeeper in the top five leagues in Europe. So that that's a pretty shocking statistic. I, I mean, like, so that was a big choice. They kept a clean sheet today, honestly impressed with Chelsea's offense as always Giroud has really been quite good since the restart and sort of the ability to play Giroud for a little and Abraham for a little seeing Pulisic really come together Mason Mount as well it is good considering they're probably going to try to offload you know Willian and Pedro in the offseason but I'm really just kind of disappointed with this Wolves team I think they fell flat um, I, the fact that they couldn't get a single goal against this truly awful Chelsea defense 
it is disappointing. The fact that they left Adama Traore on the bench, strange. I don't know. I, I think good on Chelsea, but I'm more disappointed in the fact that Wolves couldn't really put anything together. Yeah, you mentioned the form of Olivier Giroud. Eight goals in his last 10 games for Chelsea, all since the restart, having not scored a league goal for them uh, before then, I believe. So uh, this season, that is. So you're right. I think Chelsea do. I mean, Pedro and Willian are both leaving on freeze. And they do have, obviously, Ziyech and Werner coming in. But I, I kind of think that there's going to be an interesting battle for that backup striker role between Tammy Abraham and Olivier Giroud. Because even though Abraham showed that he's capable of scoring goals in spurts, it seems like with this new formation that Lampard's been trying out, that Giroud is actually better suited for that role. And while obviously the bearded Frenchman is not at all at the levels of of Timo Werner, you have to think that Tammy Abraham has to make his presence felt or else he'll become the next Mishi Bakshuai. Because Chelsea seem to have very low patience for these you know, 10 to 15 goals a year strikers. Uh, and I really worry that for a promising English forward like Abraham is at risk of losing a significant chunk of his minutes. And, and Caleb, I think you're spot on about how this Wolves team fell flat. I think that this is a problem that happened with Sheffield as well. And these teams that are system teams, you know, you look at their the bench and you have two or three players who are capable of coming off and making a real impact. But we know that their successes are, are are largely predicated on how well their teams function as a unit. You look at the 3-5-2 of Sheffield or the 3-4-3 of Wolves. They just haven't really been up to it post-restart. I think having to play a game every three days is really, really challenging when you can't actually rotate a squad to keep the legs fresh. And that's been pretty indicative of how they've fared since the restart. They lost 2-0 to Chelsea. They lost to Arsenal. They lost to Sheffield. And even though they were, and they drew at Burnley, which was uh, a really poor result for them. And even though they performed pretty well throughout the entirety of the season, I do think that their squad needs like three or four signings. Otherwise, they're going to fall flat again next season. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Nathan. Wolves have scored six goals in their last six games and have found goals surprisingly hard to come by since Project Restart has, well, restarted. <laughs> <laughs> And I think you're also right in saying that this formation that Wolves play is exceptionally demanding on their squad, and it requires a lot of tactical flexibility that can really put some wear and tear on the legs of these players, especially players who aren't exactly as mobile up top like Raul Jimenez, who's been amazing and he's been a great poacher for Wolves, but he's not the most mobile player. We've seen the goals kind of dry up from him And by that effect, we've seen the goals dry up everywhere else since he's not been leading the line effectively. A seven-week rest is exactly what this Wolves team is going to need to recharge for a Europa League campaign next year. The poison chalice of the Europa League uh, tacked on to the the Premier League campaign. And the Wolves already struggled at the beginning of this season when they were dealing with the Europa League group stage. So it'll be interesting to see how they reevaluate going into that competition at the beginning of next season. You know something I just realized? I totally, when Nathan mentioned Michi Bachuai a minute ago, I was like, yeah, wow. And then I was like, wait a minute, he's still at Chelsea. Yep, he's still there. He could literally become English Michi Bachuai. (laughs) Well, anyways, lads, we've talked about Champions League qualification and the glories of European football, or perhaps the not-so-glories 
if you're a Foxes fan or a Wolves fan. Not a good day for the four-legged mascots in the Premier League. But um, let's move down the table. Unfortunately, we must say our goodbyes to Bournemouth in Watford, perhaps in controversial style, because right after we finished potting last week, we learned that Nigel Pearson, the former Watford coach, we have to say now, because he was sacked with only two games remaining in the season and replaced by the U23 manager, Hayden Mullins. And uh, that decision didn't really pay off for the Pozo family as <laughs> <laughs> as uh, Watford suffered two very heavy defeats, both away to Man City and Arsenal, uh, while they showed some fight today in crawling back into the match at the Emirates. There was really no chance of Watford staying up, gents. Nathan, what did you make of Nigel Pearson's mysterious and quite scandalous sacking and also the way Watford sort of kind of ebbs into nothingness a little bit at the end of these last two games. I mean, it's just really poor management. And we've known that Watford have had some front office hijinks in the works for a long time since their breakthrough season in the Premier League. What is it now? Three years ago. We've known about how they love to bring in players from Granada and players from Udinese, uh, other clubs in the Pozzo family uh, network. To me, it seems really shocking that they would sack a manager with two games left to play in the rel- in a relegation battle. I mean, you look at the fact that they actually had just beaten Norwich and Newcastle before losing to West Ham, um, before that that uh, that sacking was in place. They set all. I mean, they've they've now set the record for most managers used in a Premier League season. But you look at this squad. I mean. Yes, they showed some good fight back today after going 3-0 down against Arsenal, but this squad is just full of weird, underachieving stories. And and yes, maybe the season goes differently if Delafeu uh, isn't out with a cruciate ligament injury for most of the season, or if Isaac's success doesn't get injured. But this squad just lacks like any sort of Premier League kind of structure. And that is what really damned them, I think, this year. And while I do think Watford are the kind of team that would be able to rebound and come back up next year. I think of the three teams that went down this year, Watford are actually the least likely to return to the Premier League because I think that the way that they've spent their money in the past couple of years uh, is not befitting of a, of a true Premier League team. And part of that is because of how much they've relied on exporting talents from Udinese and Granada. I think Watford are the team that will definitely be most disappointed to be relegated. I mean, Bournemouth, at least according to 5.30, had like a 95% chance of going down. And yet somehow they finished above Watford. I, I think this, I don't know, just everything fell apart from them. And I agree, Nathan, that this is the type of team that I feel is not going to bounce back in part because it's a bunch of players who have seen their careers kind of fall. Um, and I think it's a lot of players that will individually think that they're too good for the championship. And so I worry this team's just going to kind of completely disassemble. I will give them some credit, though, because despite, you know, going down 2-0 early to Arsenal, they did fight back pretty well, or 3-0, actually. They did fight back pretty well. They actually outshot Arsenal. They nearly outpossessed them. Um, so I'll give them some credit for putting up some fight, but really in a lot of ways, I'd blame the Pozo family above everybody else. Like Nigel Pearson, he had taken like the 13th most points in the league since taking over, which, you know, is just like lower mid table. And so I don't think he did a truly terrible job. And I think that 
shaking things up like this is just unlike I don't think you get a manager bounce in a do or die one-off game and also I'll say Arsenal really have made a lot of enemies uh I feel like in the past week because they really just decided because they're not that relevant um in the sort of top six race anymore they were just going to like make themselves the center of the relegation race. Well, yeah, I think it's all us trying to secure a discount on Grealish this summer from Aston Villa. But <laughs> uh, yeah, we're playing the long game here, guys. Yeah, I think we'll never really know what happened behind closed doors between Pearson and the Pozzo family. There was murmurings of a bust up behind the scenes, which led to Pearson being let go. But yeah, it's one of those. It's one of the strangest managerial merry-go-rounds I think I've ever seen when it comes to Watford this season starting off with Javi Gracia and then bringing back Kike Sanchez Flores and then letting him go after not a lot of time at all and then bringing in someone who we know is a bit emotional and a bit contentious in Nigel Pearson. And he, he can get a little bit tough to handle, but we know he can keep teams in the division. He's good at creating an organized setup. But to let him go at the at the last minute, I mean, it's just shocking. It's shocking club management from owners who I think are going to find it really difficult to get that immediate bounce back in the championship, especially if they're not able to keep these star players like Roberto Pereira, Ismail Asar, that they've signed for a considerable amount of money. Not to harp on them for too, too long because we know where they're headed, but looking at how they defended for the first 40 minutes of the game, someone on, on Twitter called Aubameyang's bicycle kick goal a Stoke City assist with a Barcelona finish. And it all came as a result of how disorganized they were and you had to think that a large part of that is due to the inconsistencies at the managerial level for them so feel a little bad for elton john today but they are down to the championship joining norwich and bournemouth bournemouth maybe a team that should have done better this season as well you look at how they have performed in the past couple of years and the money that they've spent and okay 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 but here's the thing here's the thing and before we get on to bournemouth i think it's really important to cast our gaze back to June 17th, the first game week back from Project Restart or of Project Restart. And it was a nil-nil draw between Aston Villa and Sheffield United, a game that we talked about on this pod. And at that time, we said, imagine if Aston Villa stay up by one point. (laughs) Well, lads, Aston Villa have stayed up by one point. If you don't remember what happened in that game, uh, Nyland the Aston Villa goalkeeper of the day. But Nylond, he allowed the ball to just cross the line and enter the Aston Villa goal. And it should have been 1-0 to Sheffield United had Hawkeye not completely malfunctioned. So there was no goal counted for Sheffield United and it ended up being a nil-nil draw and both teams sharing a point from that game. There was a lot of controversy about it. Then Aston Villa have stayed up by one point. But if... Hawkeye had not made that malfunction, Bournemouth would have stayed up on goal difference. As I, as I, not to be contrarian right out of the gates here, but this is just a pretty bad correlation does not equal causation kind of argument here. There are too many events in a 38-game season to say that this one event would have kept the team up or relegated the team. On the other hand, but it's I mean, really it is. Bad it is. No, but it absolutely is. No, but it's not, though. It is. Because, listen, it... listen, we know that Aston Villa should not have picked up a point that game. Like, that's something that we know. I do understand what you're saying in that, you know, in the butterfly effect world that we would have lived in, 
had Hawkeye had worked properly. Perhaps some things would have altered in the timeline and we would be in a completely different place right now. But I think we can look at the optics of the situation and say that VAR and Hawkeye and that whole system as a whole completely are a part of the, maybe a small, a small part of why Bournemouth are going down, but they are certainly a part of why Bournemouth are going down to the championship. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it's like a discrete event that the decision was clearly incorrect. Right, like it's like a singular moment, a decision was poor, and not even like you can't really argue that it was the correct decision. Like it was just wrong. And that decision resulted in another thing happening directly, aka a point for Aston Villa they didn't have. Now, once again, yeah, we can't say how that affected, you know, how Demarai Gray was feeling, you know, today when he woke up to play Manchester United or something like that. Like you're right. But I do think it's worth saying that there was a bad error that had a very direct implication on the amount of points Aston Villa had on the league table. And we can say that Aston Villa should only have 34 points. At yeah, the same yeah. time, congrats to Aston Villa for staying up. No, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Because they did everything they needed to do post that incident in order to stay up. I think we can talk about the amazing contribution shown today by club captain and Villa, Villa fan growing up, Villa boy, Jack Grealish who went on and scored the goal against West Ham today. A beautifully taken, powerfully hit shot that essentially has kept the villains up in the Premier League. And it was a week a week of games that defined Villa's season in which they took three points at home to Arsenal and drew away to West Ham today. And that's seen them, seen them safe. If I were Jack Grealish, this would have been my final contribution for the club. I think Grealish has drawn the eyes of suitors from uh, United and Arsenal over the course of this season. And I think he's definitely capable of making those kind of contributions for a bigger club, eight goals and six assists for a relegation threatened side like Villa is, uh, is no small feat. And frankly, we've been able to see Jack Grealish really evolve over the course of his career. He made his debut with the club at the age of 18, I believe in the season where Villa were close to setting the, uh, the points record for fewest points ever picked up in a premier league season. But his time in the championship served him really well. He's an incredibly creative player. He's the most fouled player in the Premier League by a long margin. And I really do think that if he can get his club a tidy 40 or 45 million in this summer's transfer market, he will go out and be renowned as a, a Villa legend. Yeah, you don't get calves like Jack Grealish unless you're a Kosovo Albanian like Jordan Shakiri or you spend time in the championship. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh god! Um, on cab strength alone, Villa stayed up. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I agree. I think Grealish has done really well, and I'm I'm very curious to see where he goes because I think before Man U signed Bruno Fernandes, I would have said, oh, he's a natural fit as like a cam for them with James Madison being the other candidate. But I don't know exactly where he goes now, especially for the amount of money. Villa are going to want so that they can sort of finance, you know, much needed signings in other areas of their team. I watched a bit of Dean Smith's post-match press conference and shout out to Dean Smith as well, whose father passed away uh, during the break due to COVID-19. He was born an Aston Villa, Aston Villa fan and has gotten them up in one season and kept them in the Premier League in the next. So huge shout out to the manager of Aston Villa, Dean Smith. But after the game, he was asked about the future of Jack Grealish 
and he said <laughs> that was something for uh, tomorrow when he sits down with the sporting director and the officials at the club. But tonight, he said that he, he thinks that Grealish is going to get drunk with him. So I don't know exactly where his future lies, but I do know that there's going to be a lot of booze in Jack Grealish's future, at least in the immediate future. Yeah, personally, so first of all, Grealish had what a scout would call character issues. I think as a young kid, he had a bit of arrogance on and off the pitch. As much as we've seen him mature, we've also seen a different side of him, but I would personally love to see him at Arsenal. I think he would bring the kind of creative drive that we really need in a midfielder. Otherwise, frankly, I think a team like Leicester, if they ha- if they wanted to splash the cash and, and use him as as their number 10, I think he'd be a great fit there. But really, I think he'll he's the kind of player who could play either as a center mid, a center attacking mid, or even coming off of the left wing. So I think he'll be able to find success wherever he winds up. But ideally, I would love to see him in red and white this coming year. I think Leicester's a great shout for Jack Grealish. I think Brendan Rodgers is actually someone who could develop him into a more of a well-rounded player, more so than he already is. And I think he is exactly the kind of player that Leicester like, someone who's young, someone who's English, and someone who can grow into their system as time progresses. Yeah, I think the one question, if he were to join a Leicester, is like, how does he work with a player like James Madison, who has a kind of similar profile? How do they fit a midfield three? Um, Like, does Tielemans take a set? Does Ndidi take a set? So I think there's not as clear... Like, he, he would enter Leicester and provide a lot of competition for spots there. Meanwhile, I think at an Arsenal, he would have more of like a definite starting place because he offers something very different and is just far more developed than their current options. Like he's infinitely better than Joe Willock. So I I don't know. And I I don't really know. I don't think it's clear where he's going to go, especially because he could be quite expensive. And let's talk about the team that were the victims of Aston Villa staying up in the Prem. That is the Cherries of Bournemouth. Lads, we've kind of gotten accustomed to seeing Bournemouth stick it out in the Premier League, especially considering the size of their club and just where they stand in terms of financial standings in the division. I think this was finally the time where Eddie Howe's luck ran out and they weren't able to provide enough answers to stay in the league. Yeah, and it it just looked like they got found out. You know, they played this 4-4-2 the entire season and they got some really excellent goals from Liverpool, Loney, Harry Wilson along the way that helped them pick up points, but... At the end of the day, I think a lot of this boils down to their away form. And they've played great in the Vitality uh, over the last three years, but they picked up just 13 points on the road in 19 games this year. And that's just never going to be good enough to keep a team afloat. They also were a little over-reliant on on set pieces this year with a little more than 30% of their goals coming from either corners or free kicks. So I think that of all the teams that went down, they could really be poised to to come right back up. I also think that they have players who could be sold on for, for decent sums, the likes of Callum Wilson uh, or Philip Billing, Jefferson Lerma, Ryan Frazier. Yeah, These I think well, Ryan Frazier's already going to go. His contract's expired and he hasn't featured since Project Restart began. So I think he's already out the door. I think Wilson is someone who can, who can provide an extra spark up top for potentially another club that's going to be fighting off relegation next season or another team in the bottom half of the table. I don't think he's quite at the level 
for a top half side. But I just think Bournemouth, I don't want to say didn't belong in the Premier League to begin with, but I think they're a success story of a club that followed the pitch and the belief of one manager's system. And it's gotten them tremendously far up to the heights of the Prem. And unfortunately, I just don't think they had enough financial firepower and wherewithal to stay up this season by doing the same thing over and over again. Like Nathan said, I think they just got found out and they didn't make enough changes to cope with that. The biggest issue for this team was that Ryan Frazier really regressed. Um, I mean, he only had a single goal and four assists this year. And as you said, hasn't really featured since the restart. So, and he was their main kind of more dynamic um, sort of like attacking midfield wing player. I mean, I can't expect much more out of Josh King. I think Callum Wilson has been fine. Um, and then I think part of the issue is they kind of invested in the wrong places. Like they, like neither Jordan Ibe nor Solanke have really panned out. I mean, Solanke's, you know, scored three goals in his past few games, but those were his first goal contributions this entire year. And I think that they just never really put together a convincing enough team. I think uh, I have a few golden rules in life, gents. You know, treat others as you want to be treated. And uh, the other one is don't rely on Dominic Solanke for Premier League goals. And I think when you're doing that, when you're hoping for uh, when you're hoping for Dom Solanke to come through with the big moments, that is how you know you're really struggling to find any sense of form. Pretty much. And I, I feel for Eddie Howe, he is one of the younger coaches in the Premier League this past season. He's still only 42 years old. I hope that Bournemouth stick with him because he seems like he has a really good handle on the spirit of the club. If they don't keep him on, if they do sack him, he will have his fair share of suitors from Premier League sides. That is for sure. I honestly think Bournemouth are the most organized team that is going to be, I think them and Norwich perhaps, Norwich especially considering I think they're going to be able to keep a lot of their talent next season in the championship. I also think Bournemouth are very well suited to bounce right back up into the Premier League the following season. I think Eddie Howe is just so organized a manager. His talent is well beyond the other managers in the championship that I think he'll, Bournemouth, I think they're in a good position to come right back up next season or the following season. Yeah, and and speaking of coming up the following season, since our, since our last pod, we now know the identity of the second promoted team from the championship uh, that is a return for the, to the Premier League for West Brom. So congrats to another Midland side who find their way back to the Premier League as well. Yeah, listen, shout out to uh, the person who could, our lovely composer who composed our corner kick theme song that you hear at the beginning of every one of our episodes. Uh, William Hattel, massive West Bromwich Albion fan and Midlands, son of the Midlands. Huge shout out to him. Shout out to all the Baggies fans out there. And I'm excited to see West Brom back in the division, especially since their long-term rivals, Aston Villa, are going to be competing in the Prem as well. Yeah, so we'll be able to have a proper Midlands Derby next year, which will be one of the many exciting fixtures. And I guess now that we've we've touched on all the relegated teams, we actually were given the start date for the Premier League this past week for the 2020-2021 season. And it seems like there could be some uh, some potential issues with it. Nick, do you want to take us into that? Well, the good news is we're not going to have to wait too terribly long for soccer to be back on our screens from the great nation of England next season. Uh, Project re-restart, if you will. The next iteration of the Premier League will be coming to us on September 12th, which is only seven weeks away. So not, not, I mean, like if we're talking about clubs going down, 
Or if you're talking about clubs going down, it's not a lot of time for them to get their affairs in order for the championship. And it's certainly not a lot of time for promoted clubs to get their affairs in order for the Premier League next season. It's not a lot of time for anyone, especially teams such as Manchester City, who are going to be competing in the Champions League in August. But Caleb, what do you make of this rapid turnaround? I don't know. I, I agree. It, it puts a lot of logistical challenges on many teams um, that have to integrate players into the side quickly, that have to integrate players into teams while they're still competing in other competitions. Right? Like I can't even imagine what like Chelsea training is like right now, where you have you know Werner and Ziyech there, but you also don't want to... like break up the mojo with the existing squad which still has to play in the champions league so i think it's tough i think part of the reality of the world we live in is that things are not ideal and so you just kind of have to get over that um but i agree that it'll prove a challenge so i don't know if that's a satisfying answer but i think it's just kind of going to be one of those things where it's not like the premier league is going to change their you know next season start date now and so clubs should just be like okay what can i do to make sure that my players are settled as best as they can be. Yeah, and at the end of the day, I don't think this is terribly different from what clubs would have had to been facing had Euro 2020 been taking place either. You know, we see big clubs be uh, disproportionately affected by international tournaments every two years anyways. So at the end of the day, I think that the teams that are most affected by this are the teams that are still in the Champions League. And at the same time, if there had been the Euros and we needed to see players get extended summer breaks, it would have had a similar effect. So I do think, yes, it's unfortunate. We can all recognize that it's unfortunate. On the other hand, this keeps uh, the Premier League synced up with the returns of most of the other domestic leagues. We know the Bundesliga is coming back on the 12th, as is the Eredivisie in the Netherlands. I'm not too sure on the exact dates for Spain or Italy yet, but I'm imagining it's in that time frame as well. So I think it's it's good that all these leagues are getting synced up again. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this August, this new one-legged Champions League format plays out as well. So benefits to fans and benefits to the European game as a whole, I think. But with the end of the season comes the beginning of handouts of individual player awards. One such handout was made a couple days ago in the form of Jordan Henderson, the club captain of Liverpool, receiving the FWA, the Football Writers Association Player of the Year Award, which I think was met with <laughs> with, with quite a bit of controversy, especially considering Jordan Henderson, as amazing of a player as he is, he's, uh, he's no Kevin De Bruyne. But uh, I, I think this is an award well-deserved, especially considering Henderson's contributions on the pitch this season. Uh, when he's not playing, Liverpool have a dramatically worsened win percentage i think they win about 50 percent of the time when he's not playing compared to the 90 percent of the time when he is on the field with liverpool and especially his contributions off the pitch and in the community which is also a part and part part and parcel of receiving the football writers association award means that he is a he is a deserving recipient of the award i agree i think i still think de bruyne is gonna win the pfa player of the year award probably and so this is you know the first of many awards we see this year. But I think you understand why a player like Henderson wins it when they were interviewing him after and they showed him that video that Klopp had sent him talking about how it's sort of his mix of ability and attitude that really makes him the sort of excellent captain and player that he is and sort of the emotion that Henderson showed that I think this was rewarding a player who 
in a lot of ways was the soul and sort of like spiritual rock of this Liverpool team. And I think it's important that that gets rewarded, even though I can admit that Henderson is nowhere near the best player in terms of just ability and talent um, in the Premier League itself. Yeah, I really think that soccer Twitter seized on this award as some sort of indicator of bias towards English players. Uh, but really, I think that's just people not understanding that there are actually multiple different player uh, players of the year awards. Uh, I do think that De Bruyne, who tied the uh, the longstanding uh, assist record of 20 assists in the Premier League um, that Thierry Henry had held and the 13 goals that he shipped in as well, I do think that De Bruyne will end up winning the PFA Player of the Year uh, nod. And I think that there's a good chance that both Henderson and De Bruyne end up featuring in the team of the year, actually. But yeah, if you, I think the people who were outraged at this simply didn't understand the nature of the award itself. And congrats to Henderson, who on all accounts is a, is a great captain and a great teammate and well on his way to being a Liverpool legend as well. Well, I'll also add that I think that soccer Twitter was itching for more like awards controversy after the Ballon d'Or was canceled. And so like, honestly... No matter what happened, there would have been some upset about the award not really making sense or like, why can't there be a Ballon d'Or if there can be like the FWA, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. I think that in general, my rule of life is to ignore Twitter. Um, but especially when it comes to things like this, I think that rings doubly true. Also, another indicator of Henderson's quality and importance to this Liverpool side over the course of the season, when grit has really been the attribute that has defined them. We can look at what Brendan Rodgers had to say coming into the Manchester United game in his pre-match press conference when he said that the absence of Jordan Henderson in the lead-up to the 2013-14 run-in where Liverpool famously capitulated, slipped up, if you will, in their chase of the Premier League title way back when, was that Hendo or Henderson wasn't available for those final four games. Even the fact that Rodgers now was able to equate Liverpool's success to Jordan Henderson, or lack of success, being equated to Hendo not being on the pitch for those final games shows his importance to this Liverpool side over the course of his career as a player on the team. I feel like the success has been coming to him. He's been a player that I think is criminally underlooked purely because he is not the most flashiest player in the world, but I think is certainly a player who is perhaps you could say the most consistent player in the Premier League at what he does. And with that being said, that is the end of our show for today. Commiserations to Watford. Commiserations to Bournemouth. Up with the villains. I guess congratulations to Manchester United as well. (laughs) But that has been the Premier League season. That has been Project Restart. What have you guys made? Well, before before we go... What have you guys made of Project Restart and the way all of this is shaken out and the way that world soccer has responded, specifically the Premier League has responded to uh, the coronavirus pandemic? Dude, it's kept me alive this summer. I reflect on the past like eight weeks or so and I'm like, oh my God, if there hadn't been soccer around, life really would have become almost unbearably dull. So I am very thankful for you guys, for this show and for the thing that allows us to have a show yeah couldn't couldn't have said it any better than that i mean it felt like honestly it felt like an eternity between when the premier league was officially called off um back in march to when it restarted and i'm glad that everyone including the players and staff have made it through 
unscathed for now. And I'm glad that we've been able to talk about it for so long. And I'm looking forward to perhaps maybe a return to something resembling normalcy in a few months time. Yeah, England, Boris, don't let us down. Don't let us down, my guy. But yeah, I think you guys are absolutely right. It has been extremely exciting these past couple of weeks too. I think there's been so much to play for even after Liverpool clinched the title. Even though today was a bit anticlimactic, you know, Chelsea and United winning and Villa staying up and the table kind of shaking out to be what it was coming into today. I still think that Project Restart was a resounding and exciting success. And we hope that you will join us for the next iteration of the Premier League season as we break it all down for you here on Corner Kick. But that has been it. That's been the season. We'll be back with you at the end of the week to give you our own edition of an award show, the Corner Kick Awards. The award everybody the award everybody wants. The award everyone wants. Yep. The Distinguished Corner Kick Award show yep. will be kicking off at the end of this week. And we're going to give our thoughts on who we think are the best players, the best comeback stories, all that jazz. So stick around for that. That will be with you shortly. But I have been Nick Vinden. I'm Caleb Rhodes. Nathan Strauss. That has been the season. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>